It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Welcome to the programme. You and I have a slight suspicion that this is the equivalent of Christmas for Bloomberg, as it's the day before the budget, and we have assembled a round table of experts um, in the best of all pre-budget discussions. Have you been marking your pre-budget bingo card? It's a very full studio, isn't it? Yes, I mean, I've been thinking about nothing else. I go home, I get my, my budget bingo card out. I didn't have investment zones on it though. What what's what's that all about? That's this is this is new. Well, I don't think it is new, is it? But it's new to the bingo card. It's it's a plan to supercharge growth, Ewan. Oh, I'm so glad that we finally come up with one of those. Uh, look, this is the a long trotted out idea now being reheated for the budget in the idea of having uh, zones clustered around research institutions such as universities to spur investment in areas like technology, life sciences, and advanced manufacture. This all according to the Treasury. So eight of these zones as part of the proposal. Um, it looks like a, a version of a proposal that we heard from Liz Truss. This isn't Freeports, is it? I mean, I feel like if you took away the sea, it probably is. The sort of Freeports without less water. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And less less trading. But look, it's it's one of the many proposals to try and boost business investment, which we know is something uh, that is uh, desperately uh, in need for the UK economy. Uh, there's, I mean, if you look up, though, there's plenty of kites being flown everywhere. Uh, before yeah. this budget day. Yeah, and um, so much pre-leaking about pensions, something is bound to happen. So the, the, the rumour is that they're going to lift the lifetime limit on pension contributions from uh, just under 1.1 million to 1.8 million. And they're going to uh, raise the annual f- amount you can put in a pension from 40 grand to 60 grand, which tax I know free. is a relief yeah. for me. Tax-free, yes. Of course, you can put in as much as you want if you don't mind. Pay if you don't paying tax on it, yeah, fair enough. Okay, look, though, there you go. Two budget uh, bingo words for you ahead of tomorrow. But let's continue our pre-budget conversation and look at some of the other issues the Chancellor uh, is mulling over. We've got our equality reporter, Olivia Katone Ahulu, in studio with us as well. And our economy reporters, Lucy White and Philip Aldrich. Uh, full house today. Uh, Olivia, let's start with you. You've been looking at one of the big issues uh, facing the UK economy, which is the cost of childcare. And anyone who has children knows how big an issue this is. But exactly how expensive is it and what does it mean for the economy? 
Well, I think it's fair to say that in the UK, it's pretty expensive. So when you look at the OECD, according to their calculations, the UK is one of the most expensive um, countries in the whole of the OECD for that. So it takes up about 30% of a couple's um, salary, according to their calculations. So for some people, it's more than their mortgages. A lot of mothers who are paying for childcare um, are saying that it doesn't make financial sense for them to work. So it's fair to say that it's so expensive that it's having repercussions across the economy. And Lucy, we had uh, jobs data out today. How does how does this issue feed into the, the, the tightness of the labour market? Well, exactly. The t- tightness of the labour market is something we've really been struggling with since the pandemic. You know, um, loads of uh, companies are advertising for jobs and a lot of positions just aren't getting filled quite at the pace that they need to be. Um, at the moment, childcare is playing into this. We've got uh, just over 5 million women who are inactive, which means, you know, that they're, they don't have a job and they're also not looking for a job. And um, around 28% say that they're jobless because they're looking after the family or at home. And that compares to 3.7 million men. So obviously, if you if you took that percentage of women who are looking after the family and home, if they could get back into work, it would bring the inactivity rates broadly similar to, to for, for men and women. Gosh. So, yes. uh, so, yeah. th- so 30% of 5 million, that's, that, that's, that's a, a lot. pretty big chunk. One and a half million yeah. each. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a lot of people. Yeah, yeah that would uh, certainly make the labour market uh, a bit different if, if that was yeah. fixed. I mean, going back to Olivia's point, I was talking to a woman this morning um, who has had three children and she hasn't been able to get into the jobs market for 10 years now because... Uh, she's obviously had had that chunk of time out of the jobs market and, you know, no one wants to look at her CV for, because of that gap. Olivia, as part of your reporting on this subject, you've been speaking to lots of people who are, who are affected by it. What sort of solutions are there to this problem? Well, I think the big one is one that um, is something that's quite difficult. Like what a lot of people are saying is firstly, it needs a lot more money. So, for example, there are subsidies to make um, so-called um, free hours of childcare accessible to parents. But what people have been saying across the board is that the government just doesn't provide enough money for kind of nurseries and other providers to meet those costs. So one estimate is that the um, government needs to provide £1.75 billion pounds more in order to in order to make up those costs. And then there's other things like it's just really complicated. There's loads of different subsidies. Parents don't necessarily know about all of them. So some pots of money set aside for childcare aren't actually being fully spent. So it'll be really interesting to see if any of those issues are addressed tomorrow. Phil, talk us through the broader picture of the the tight labour market. You've got a piece out on the Bloomberg Terminal today about some some other people who face uh, very high marginal tax rates moving into work. Yeah, so actually this is kind of about the interaction between (coughs) benefits and pay. So the incentive to get a job is, uh, is not working in the same way. As uh, as it as it's supposed to, and it certainly doesn't seem to be working as well as it used to. Um, so actually, there was there was an employer I spoke to who uh, was speaking to a stay-at-home dad rather than a stay-at-home mum. But they uh, they have two kids. He was looking at a job for twenty thousand pounds, but then you work out that um, if you get your benefits withdrawn and you pay taxes on that twenty thousand pounds, and you get down to a net income. For the household, after all of that, because the because the effective tax rate for anything over about twelve and a half thousand pounds is is seventy percent, which is astonishing, really. Um, and so you get down to about eight thousand pounds net net income, out of which you then have to pay childcare. So it comes back to the childcare problem. And so he he told 
the employer because she said because he came in and he gave her a form and said could you just sign this because i need to keep claiming my benefits but i have to go and i have to do this go through these checks to uh to get my benefits and she said well why don't you want a job and he just he ran through the numbers with, with her and said it just doesn't pay like he, he would end up paying other people to look after his kids and he'd only have you know like it worked out something like three or four thousand pounds a year for a full-time job um and so it's that th- that interaction in the benefit system with wages does there seems to be a bit of a problem there and there's also these, these issues about people um there's we've got this enormous increase in long-term sickness which we haven't seen so we've got two things which are unique in the uk you've got this inactivity rate which is just absolutely blown up here where it hasn't blown up elsewhere we have participation as a result of, which has fallen where participation across europe has risen so people are actually just not not like dropping out whereas in other countries people are joining the labor force um, and you've got the long-term sickness which is not being seen elsewhere either and the long-term sickness you could again link it to benefits because it's more attractive you you know you can claim you can get a benefit which is twice as generous and you don't have all of this work conditionality stuff where you have to go in and try to be getting a job if you're declared you know too sick to work so you're guaranteed to keep this benefit which is more generous but if you do take a job, you've got to go through all the rigmarole of checks and, and you'll lose this extra benefit should you lose your job So um, after taking it. So people just don't want to take that job. And at the moment, benefits have been rising. So the, if you look at the OBR, look at the forecast ahead, the benefits are rising over three years from 2022 to 2024 at about 20%. Um, and benefits and earnings over that period, according to the Office of Budget Responsibility, are rising by about 15%. Um, and then you've, we've had all these top-ups on the on top of that. So you could say these have weakened those incentives to just get back into work. And, and as a result, I mean, th- what we're looking for here is why... The big question is people are dropping out of the workforce. How on earth are they affording to live in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis? They're effectively choosing not to work, a lot of people. I mean, there are some who obviously ill there are the really rich who are taking their pensions early so there's a variety of different things there's students who are just yeah. staying in employment but for a certain group there is this kind of really weird twist well this this there's been lots of focus on the old that older demographic the 50 64 year olds and why they're dropping out of the workforce early you mentioned the pensions idea mm. one of the things being floated is perhaps might move the dial for some people how how does that section of the workforce inactive section of the workforce how does that fit into the broader picture and and could a pension change actually be material in that area? Uh, the, so that so that the, the, those older workers are account for the largest share of the of that increase in inactivity, um, uh, and certainly people taking early retirement uh, is is part of it. We've actually seen in the jobs data this morning that the number of retirees, the people who have taken retirement and gone into inactivity has dropped. So we're already seeing a slight shift. The way that the pension changes, which this increase to potentially 1.8 million pounds in your pension part and the, uh, and the uh, payments that you're allowed, annual payment max is being lifted as well. There are you know, these, on, for people who can't bear the thought that there is this amount of money that they're gonna leave on the table because you know if they just worked an extra five years, they could max out, they can get, I think some numbers were suggesting you could get an extra 100,000, pounds into your you know, and potentially into your um, annual retirement income but uh, so that you're going to be leaving that on the table for people who at the, at the wealthier end of the spectrum that may be an incentive but I, it's really it seems these this is this is targeting the the, mm-hmm. the very rich there are some people there who specifically need this which are the doctors and the consultants where we have got a very very specific problem but it's it seems to be targeting that group whilst giving a lot away to the broader uh, that broader age demographic Lucy where where might we get some clear 
blue water, clear red water between the parties at the next election. Particularly, I'm thinking about childcare reforms. The, the rumours that uh, the Chancellor might do some some stuff on childcare tomorrow. But w- where could where could Labour differentiate itself there? So at the moment, um, from from what we're hearing coming out of the Treasury and and uh, uh, ahead of the budget, it seems to be that what what uh, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is going to do is is largely tinkering around the edges. It's Any help is mainly going to be focused on parents who are claiming universal credit by the sounds of it. Um, you know, it's stuff like allowing universal credit claimants to uh, claim their cl- claim the chunk of money that they use to pay for childcare up front rather than having to pay for it out of their pocket and then, you know, be reimbursed at a later date. Stuff like that and stuff like... Um, increasing the amount of money that they're allowed to claim for for childcare costs. So the, there's little, it sounds like there will be little in the budget to help those middle income families who are actually, you know, struggling to to afford the costs of childcare, like like the person I mentioned earlier. Um, I, I think labor it's, it's... is labor is definitely you know kind of looking to encroach on this a little bit you know we, we've heard bridget phillipson talking this week um at various events about you know labor wanting a, a more wholesale reform of childcare, but at the same time there's little detail yet olivia are the people you're speaking to actually hopeful that there's going to be any change in this I feel like, so for example, last year there was this protest called the March of the Mummies and thousands of people turned up across cities and um, and had really creative kind of banners and talking about just how, basically how angry they were. And shortly after that, Parliament um, announced an inquiry into childcare. And I feel like this has been a problem for years, is the fact of it. Um, but it does feel like it's kind of reaching a crunch point now, kind of added to the cost of living crisis. Um, so would I say that people are hopeful um maybe not but it does feel like at the same time that things have reached such a crisis point that the government can't necessarily afford to ignore it especially with a general election coming up and and phil just briefly you've written about uh, uh lost decade uh comparisons with 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 japan is it is it that bad uh, it might not be quite so bad uh, now the the, the premise of that is based on the bank of england's forecast for the three years coming and if you work out the aggregate growth over the 10 years the UK ends up quite considerably lower than Japan mm. in its dreadful lost decade from 1991 to 2000 um, where I think that it looks like the economy's doing a little bit better but I will the will the Bank of England upgrade its forecast or will we uh, perform well enough over the next three years to, to make up the gap because I can't remember specifically I think it was about 11% versus 8% so um, there, oh, is, there is a little bit you know so we were basically growing sub 1% a year on average for 10 years which was which I think I think Japan made it just over 1% a year but uh, so hopefully we might be able to, to to do a little bit better in the next three years and of course another parallel of course with the lost decades is that both countries labour markets were, were robust with low unemployment during, during these periods interestingly yeah, it's it's uh, it, bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> Managing to hold on to the jobs yeah. in a, in a well, period of difficulty. On that note of lukewarm optimism, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, our economy reporters, Philip Aldrich, Lucy White, and our quality reporter, uh, Olivia Canoto, Ahulu as well. Thank you all so much for joining us.
Now, Lizzie Burton's jumped into the studio on a flying visit. Lizzie, you've many bigger fish to fry than talking to me on, uh, of course, this very busy budget week. But I had to talk to you about your interview with the City Minister, Andrew Griffith. We heard it yesterday on the programme, but we haven't had a chance to chat about it. What stood out for you from that conversation? Stephen, I always have time for you. But (laughs) I must say this was a very interesting conversation with Andrew Griffith. Uh, He said, the most striking thing for me that he said, was that there are no guarantees made to HSBC on the sale of uh, Silicon Valley Bank UK, uh, facilitated, of course, by the Bank of England, the Treasury and the UK regulators. He wouldn't go into detail on whether other bidders had asked for guarantees or how much money they were putting on the table. But it's interesting to note, of course, that SVB was sold for £1 to HSBC, so it does raise some eyebrows. We also learnt, of course, yesterday that ministers gave HSBC some help to get it over the line in the form of waiving certain ring-fencing requirements permanently. These are the rules that require banks to separate off the retail division from the investment banking and international banking activities activities. So that could spell some trouble down the line. Now, the UK has won some praise on how it's handled the Silicon Valley bank issue here from no less than Mohamed El Arian, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and, of course, famed investor as well. He says the UK has done better than the US on intervening on this. Um, does, Lizzie, this help to restore a bit of confidence in the UK government that, of course, it lost around the mini-budget? Well, I have to say, I asked Andrew Griffith how they celebrated at the Treasury and there was no mention of champagne. He said they got on with the job because, of course, they've got the budget later this week tomorrow, in fact. But there was a collective sigh of relief, especially in the tech sector yesterday. Most of SVB UK's depositors were in tech. The Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, wants to make the UK a tech superpower as part of the budget to grow the economy. So to see some of Britain's most promising startups go to the wall really would have been extremely painful. They're very glad that that hasn't happened. In terms of the wider consequences, though, I would just flag a note from Berenberg's Callum Pickering yesterday. Um, You've seen Goldman Sachs changing its call for the Federal Reserve. Pickering says if the SVB shock tightens financial conditions in the real economy, it'll reduce the need for the Bank of England to go much further in terms of hikes or even hike more at all. He says the chance of a pause is now heightened and that's reflected in the market pricing. And so this could feed through maybe to the Chancellor's thinking for the Mm. budget as well. Okay, um, look, we we have you here in studio, so I will ask you about the budget. We've been talking about, of course, building up to tomorrow. What's your thought on Budget Day, the thing to watch out for? Well, I would just comment on the jobs data that we had this morning and how that feeds into uh, the picture for the budget because we saw that the UK lost 220,000 working days to strikes in January. So that makes the total since June 1.1 million. That's the highest since Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister in the late 80s. And you saw the gap between public sector pay growth and private sector pay growth um, still wide, although it's narrowing. So 4.8% versus 7%. It's really eye-watering. And this is going to be a key issue at the budget. Pressure on the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, to siphon off some cash to settle the dispute with the unions. Doesn't look like that's likely at the moment. And the other thing that was in the jobs data was economic inactivity. It fell again because young people are coming back to the workforce, but it's still a big issue. One that I hear the Chancellor is really going to focus on tomorrow, um, especially using pensions and benefit reforms to try to lure people back to the workforce. 
Okay, Lizzie, plenty more from you in Westminster tomorrow. Thank you. Well, let's get more on something which I bet wasn't on Jeremy Hunt's budget bingo card, and that is the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. That has really thrown global finance into turmoil, as we have been discussing endlessly on Bloomberg in the last few days. To get an idea of the chaos it caused, we spoke to a venture capital firm called Notion. Now, the companies they're invested in had £167 million tied up in the UK arm of SVB. 13 of them were at risk of going insolvent within a month if they lost access to those those funds. So we asked Notion's co- co-founder Stephen Chandler what his weekend was like. As you probably guessed, it was um, pretty miserable. Um, uh, so I guess it, it started last week um, on Wednesday and Thursday. Actually, on Thursday, I was sitting around a table with um, some other VC investors. And, you know, this is indicative of the, of the challenge we have these days because people's phones were just pinging uh, every you know few seconds with uh, concerned founders, concerned other VCs. The way that this uh spread around the news spread around the market was you know exceptionally fast i think that's what made it very different from any kind of bank run that we've seen before you know the ease with which customers can withdraw cash these days from a from a digital bank you don't need to go and queue up etc uh, and the speed at which the the news travels both both of which travel with you know zero distribution costs so <laughs> very very quickly and without friction and and that's why you saw such an enormous amount of money moved, 42 billion in, in, in 10 hours of banking, I believe, which is just an, a massive order of magnitude bigger than anything else we've seen, a million dollars a second. Um, and uh, so over the weekend, we were scrambling to capture data from all of our portfolio companies who were, you know, fantastically responsive. But these, you know, these, these are people's livelihoods. Um, you know, there was a lot of emotion with people feeling that this is their money which absolutely it is, and, and they should have ready access to it, and and feeling that their um, livelihoods were at threat. So, you know, our job as VCs is to do more than just provide capital. We try and provide support and insight and help, and, and we were doing a lot of that over the weekend, obviously. Okay. Do you, but overall, you think that this is a good outcome then for UK tech? I mean, the government is clearly quite pleased that unlike the US, the um, issue was wrapped up so swiftly. And yet, uh, we were speaking to the city minister, Andrew Griffith, and he revealed nothing of whether any guarantees were given to HSBC, you know, in order to take on SVB UK, you know, for a pound. Um, but overall, you think it's a good outcome for UK tech? Yeah, I think it's a it's a very good outcome. Um, uh, you know, I, I think it was the best outcome we could have hoped for in the circumstances. The announcement was clear that there was no uh, tax uh, exposure or taxpayer exposure for for UK. Um, so um, you know, this was a deal that supported the tech industry without uh, having to be any kind of bailout from the taxpayer. Um, you know, personally, I feel that uh, HSBC got a fantastic deal. Um, you know, there are relationships with some great companies there. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, their loan book has always been uh, very strong. So I think for the price that they paid, they, they got a fantastic deal. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, if they continue the service, the type of service that SVP provided, then, you know, I think it's a great outcome for UK PLC and the tech centre sector in the UK as well. That was Stephen Chandler from Notion Capital talking to us about the UK rescue of Silicon Valley Bank's UK arm. 
Now, with all this market turmoil and the foreign affairs uh, stuff, Rishi Sunak has been uh, going around the world. We've got our old perennial favourite strike action. Well, we are in the midst of three days of strikes. This is quite a serious strike by junior doctors with warnings of the worst disruptions in NHS services since the latest action began. The wave of industrial action is another piece of the backdrop to tomorrow's budget. Tube staff and teachers among those also walking out tomorrow. Well, our strikes reporter, Eamon Akil-Farhart, joins us uh, in the studio with more. Uh, Eamon, just start with the junior doctors. What sort of disruption are we seeing so far from this? So, yeah, as you said, this is three days, 72 hours of strikes. So, you know, from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday into Thursday morning, we'll have about 50,000 junior doctors from the British Medical Association walking out. Now, this means that, you know, hospital appointments will be cancelled. There'll be disruptions to different um, treatment. It also means that senior doctors will have to pick up the slack, so we'll be working even harder. Actually, these senior doctors are already balloting to also take strike action possibly later this year. Um, the kind of first um, bit of, of health strikes that we've had since December caused about 150,000 appointments to be cancelled so that we could see more this week as well being cancelled. Um, now you've been writing about the situation the doctors have been facing and, and many of them choosing to leave the NHS. Yeah exactly so a poll from the BMA showed that actually 20% uh, sorry 40% of doctors are looking to leave the NHS and when they get another job they would do that. Um, it's really quite a dire situation because their wages really haven't grown over the last 10 years. Inflation obviously is very high. Um, I think a junior doctor right now in their first year is probably going to be making less than £30,000 a year so many of them are looking to go into other careers like management consulting, investment banking, pharmaceuticals and you know there are people doing MBAs and all that. It's becoming a lot more more common, definitely. Yeah, I saw a nice piece of yours on the terminal about uh, doctors becoming uh, investment bankers. Just talk us through um, the the other strikes. Mm-hmm. We've had our eye off the ball on this a little bit. Rail rail workers, uh, tube drivers, they're, they're both uh, playing strikes. Yeah, so on the tube side, it's the tube drivers tomorrow. Um, Astleth, that's the tube drivers union. Now, this is going to be quite disruptive, probably basically no service across the underground tomorrow. Uh, it's over pay, pensions, conditions. This is actually the first tube strike in quite a while. Uh, rail strikes, we have also some on Thursday. Now, uh, on the rail side of things, we have had some breakthroughs. We've had some deals. We've had some offers and all that. But there are still strikes going on because things aren't fully, fully resolved. Um, for example, this is the RMT strikes on Thursday with the train operating companies, which there is still no offer on the table. There are still talks going on. But until there is an offer, these strikes will go ahead. Have you a note of optimism about any other strikes being resolved? <laughs> um, I mean, I think so. I think there's definitely been a bit more optimistic. I mean, I think when the health, you know, we have had the ambulance drivers and the nurses who now called off all their strike action, they entered into talks with the government as it seemed like the government was willing to offer money, uh, put money on the table, which they weren't uh, you know, offering in, in the past. And that was definitely, you know, quite a surprise to everyone and, and showed that maybe the government is about to try and resolve all of this. Obviously, on the rail side, the government does have the, the last say as well in these things. Mm, yeah, so some some signs of progress in some strikes. Um, Britain's economy lost 220,000 mm. working days, didn't it, in the first month of the year. Just put that in a bit of context for us. Yeah, so this is a little bit less than in December. In December, we were more about 850,000 days, um, so quite a lot less actually, but that's because um, Royal Mail did not have any strikes in January. Um, that being said, February data, which is obviously going to come in about a month's time, must will be much higher because the 1st of February was this mass strikes day, this mass strikes day, which we're also going to see on Wednesday, where about half a million people will be walking out. So January was a bit of a lower month, but overall, these are the worst strikes. If you take the kind of six-month period, this is the worst strike since basically 1990, 1989, since the, the late Thatcher years. Okay. Our strikes reporter, Eamon Akil-Farhat, thank you very much for joining us with the latest uh, on all of those various strikes back in the news, never far away from one. That is it from us for today, though. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. We'll be back tomorrow with our budget special. This episode was produced by James Walcock and Marifal Hussain was our audio engineer. I'm Ewan Potts. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us for that budget special tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics 
Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.